I don't know if you've noticed, but this is a challenging time for state and local officials. We're having to rapidly embrace a 24-7 digital world in the midst of a pandemic. Luckily, iConstituent.com is on a mission to help digitize services with the first platform designed specifically for the elected official to manage one-to-one personal engagement. See for yourself how their texting outreach tools are making positive impacts during the pandemic, from the city of Los Angeles to the halls of the U.S. Congress. They allow leaders to leverage data sets of constituent phone numbers to share updates on COVID and assist constituents with breaking through the red tape to get the help they need. Visit iConstituent.com to access recent case studies and get started with 5,000 text messages at no cost. Again, that's iConstituent.com. Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Brian I'm proud to say that we're closing in on both our second anniversary and our 50th episode. The New Deal and I are grateful to have shared some amazing leaders with you during that time. From Mayor Pete, when he was just a mayor, to rising stars in the Democratic Party like Senator Ramesh Akberry, Boise Mayor Lauren McLean, and Wisconsin Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. I believe that these leaders deserve a national stage. I hope you will help them, and me, by telling a friend about an honorable profession and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And guess what? We're now on Instagram. Follow us at hashtag an honorable profession. Hey, everyone. It's good to be back hosting. Thanks to Debbie Cox Bolton for covering while I dealt with a huge wildfire in my district. This week's guest is nothing short of amazing. Michigan Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist is a leader you need to know. He's a Michigander who was working as a programmer for Microsoft in Seattle when he was called to politics. He went to work as the national campaign director for MoveOn.org and returned home to Detroit. He narrowly lost a race for city clerk, only to be selected as lieutenant governor the following year. Gilchrist has the mind of an engineer and the heart of a community activist. He was the co-chair of the Democratic Party's 2020 convention and is now on everyone's radar as a national leader of the party. I could have talked to him for hours about the many crises he's helping his state navigate. Enjoy. Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It's really good to talk to you today. Thank you, Ryan. It's good to be here. We're talking on Thursday, August 27th. We're just days uh, after Jacob Blake's shooting in Wisconsin. I think the question so many Americans have is, why do you think this keeps happening and what can be done to, to stop the tragedy in our streets? I mean, this is, this is disgusting, disheartening, exhausting, um, anger-inducing, I, just, just all of the... All, all of the things I think come to mind for me when in seeing that video of uh, that young man, that father, um, that brother, friend, neighbor, um, um, that attempted murder that happened to Jason Blake, that while he survived, his life will never be the same um, in terms of physical mobility is terrible. And um, I, like I think a lot of other black men who have seen that, um, Whenever we see these stories, we think about all the moments in, that, in our lives, and that could have been us. 
And I think about um, the time, like, look, like my first interaction with police was as a nine-year-old. You know, I, my, I grew up the first half of my childhood in the city of Detroit. And we moved to the suburbs when I was eight and a half. And we moved to a suburb where I was like the one of two black kids in my neighborhood and playing with all of my new friends. Um, somebody called the police, I guess, because we were loud because nine-year-old boys are really loud when they run around outside. And the police came and singled me out as a, you know, the black kid in the group, the biggest kid in the group, because I'm tall, I'm still tall, I'm 6'8". I was the biggest kid in the group. And they, like, questioned me, and the guy said to me something I would never forget. He said, I'm going to take your name down because I'm going to see you again. And I remember being really upset about that, uh, going home to my parents, telling that story, and being just really, really upset about it. And every experience I've had since then, whether it was getting pulled over at 16 on my way to high school for going 24 miles an hour in a 25 mile an hour zone um, to actually uh, intervening as an adult, trying to break up uh, what I thought, what I saw was an escalating situation of potential police violence on the West side of Detroit. Like, like I just think about, and I know a lot of people think about that could have been me. That could have been my, my friend, my brother, my cousin, my uncle, my nephew. Um, And, just just the fact that it keeps happening tells you that the need for change is not only urgent and important, but it is present. And sometimes um, I think people forget without the benefit of like video evidence that these things are happening in communities across the country um, every single day. And so what I hope um, we can think about is that, yes, as elected leaders and appointed leaders and community leaders, we have a role to play in making the change on the programmatic and policy level. Um, but all of us have a responsibility on a cultural level to change the culture that enables this type of behavior to continue, that enables this devaluing of human life and of black life uh, to continue. And this culture that gives permission um, for people to attempt to kill black folks um, with little reason or little purpose. And, and so I, I certainly hope that this will help to continue the calls to action for uh, not just justice in this situation, but justice um, in the broadest possible sense, because Lord knows. Yeah, and I think uh, I've, I've seen a previous article where you described it as really dehumanizing uh, these police stops. Um, and obviously the way, uh, that George Floyd and Blake and, and others have been treated, it, it seems, it seems as though the system has dehumanized, uh, black men and women. Uh, and it's, it's challenging to think about how as, as policymakers, we make those changes. And then I want to get your sense cause you've been leading, uh, reform efforts in Michigan. And one of the biggest and most challenging parts of this is that you really have to go department by department and state by state. And can you talk about the successes and challenges you're having in Michigan trying to address this issue? You know, well, I mean, the first piece of it is, you know, our administration, you know, I'm, I'm Lieutenant Governor alongside Governor Gretchen Whitmer, and we're very proud of the fact that our, our team, like our partnership, um, is by default the most diverse partnership in the history of the state of Michigan at the governor, gubernatorial and lieutenant gubernatorial level. Um, I bring that up because 
I do think having that representation in leadership and representation that we try to have reflected in the entirety of our leadership team um, as an administration, we think that that creates the opportunity to have a different set of conversations um, and it creates a space for a different set of policy responses and outcomes that perhaps may not have been considered, let alone be possible, um, um, you know, if others would be in office. And so um, in my work around criminal justice reform broadly, whether it's working to reduce our jail populations in Michigan, um, creating a path for second chances through some legislation that we're very close on, on what we call clean slate, which would be automated expungement of criminal records um, in Michigan. You know, I, I believe that uh, there are policy uh, wins to be had. There are things that are the right thing to do that we need policies to enable that we can accomplish. But in order to get there at first, you know, the question needs to be called and, and that often requires a level of honesty, especially in this realm from policymakers that is often just not present enough. And so that's why I try to be very transparent um, in the midst of everything about my own personal experiences. Um, so that one, people could see that uh, even someone in my position with the, um, the blessings and privileges that I've had in my life. Um, this is not something that you can achieve your way out of. Um, it's not something that you can elect your way out of. I mean, I even think about, uh, you know, whether it's like Attorney General Eric Holder and President Obama, you know, talking about even after they had entered into public life, still, still facing these challenges. Like Eric Holder was a sitting Attorney General when he got pulled over and harassed by police um, during his time in the Obama administration. And so uh, I think that because of the leverage that representation can give you, because of the credibility that it has the chance to um, inspire in the community, uh, we need to use that as an opportunity to, to make more change than may have been possible before. And so that is why I, you know, tried to work as hard as I can um, and tried to bring as many stakeholders to the table um, to recognize that we do have the power to change the system. It's not the system. We don't have to have this system. It doesn't have to work like this. It, it works like this because it was designed to, and it means we can have the power to redesign it. Um, we can be an empowered set of people to change things. And so that's the kind of attitude that I take uh, coming here. And I think we can do things. And we have done some stuff in Michigan. We've done things to, you know, stop treating 17-year-olds um, who may have uh, committed an offense as adults in Michigan, one of the last states to do so. Um, and that's a policy that disproportionately impacted young black men. And, and we can change that pathway from a pathway to incarceration to a better pathway to possibility in Michigan. And I'm, I'm honored to work on that. Do you find that by being at the table and bringing stakeholders to the table, that these personal narratives have an impact on policy the way policy is developed or supported. Have you, have you seen that in Michigan in your experience? I have absolutely. And, and the reason that I, I am a believer in the power of it is because so, so, you know, my, my career is kind of a winding road <laughs> to get to this space. A short, but winding road. Cause you're still a young man. And nevertheless, you can have a lot of turns <laughs> in, a, in a small distance. So, um, I left the private sector and I actually went to be classically trained as a community organizer. And one of the core methods of community organizing that I learned was the method that was taught by uh, a man named Marshall Gans, Professional Marshall Gans, who was a 
pretty legendary organizer who worked um, underneath the, the, the tutelage and mentorship of Cesar Chavez. And it's called public narrative. And it basically breaks the way that you can create the space for change into telling, a, a, telling three stories. One is your story itself, telling your story um, of what makes you you and how you arrived in this moment. The second is a story of us, meaning what is the collective story um, that we need to tell that describes the moment that we are all in and that we are all confronting. And the third is the story of now, which is why something needs to change and be done now about our current stat- our status quo so that it can give us a pathway to a better future. And I use that, I use that as a policymaker um, at every opportunity. Um, and I encourage others to do so as well, because it does open people's eyes when they can see another person's experience, um, because ultimately we make policies for people. Um, policies are made to enable people to have the, a pathway to be their best selves or to live out their, their potential or to be, have a pathway or a possibility towards success. And so um, narrative is always going to be critical when you're dealing with people. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And there, there's a, a special urgency, I think, now as people as people are inundated with information uh, at an unprecedented level, stories uh, stories are memorable, right? Stories Stories connect to a, your uh, emotional core. And I think that's the stories become more important as we're trying to navigate so many crises at once in this country. Um, telling these stories is so important. You talked about your career path um, and I, and I, I want to get into it. So you're, you grew up in Michigan, uh, but after graduating, you left and went to work for Microsoft and you're in Seattle. Can you talk about the, the decision to, to one, get involved in politics, and then two, uh, to return home. Sure. So um, uh, let's take a little bit of a step back. So, yes, I, I talked about splitting my childhood in half, first half in the city of Detroit, second half in its suburbs. I went to the University of Michigan College of Engineering. Um, I wanted to be a software developer. I knew I wanted to be a technologist since I was uh, – the five-year-old whose grandmother bought him a computer and made him the first kid on my block on the east side to get a computer. Um, and so I went to school to be a software developer and then moved to, to Seattle, Washington after school, after, after graduating from college, because I thought I needed to go to the West Coast to be a software developer. <laughs> and um, I was there for four years working at Microsoft. Um, but the question about getting into politics is something that the seed for, the, for that was planted when I was very young. My parents were super active like in our neighborhood association. So like hyper local, micro, micro level politics. Um, just what do we need to do to get um, the right kind of public art in front of that apartment building? Um, how can we help uh, this public space be better utilized? Those kinds of things. And so I was like the little kid giving people water and passing out paper at those meetings. <laughs> um, so I kind of got just by uh, osmosis um, that kind of consciousness. And then my parents were, were, were my mother was, was active in a literal sense. Like she worked on a, a Detroit mayoral transition, like, and, and things like that uh, alongside her job as an accountant general motors. And my dad was not as active beyond the neighborhood level stuff, but he was very informed. And so like in my childhood, we were like watching C-SPAN and listening to Motown was like the soundtrack to my childhood. <laughs> and so, um, when I left home to go to college, um, 
I had a, a, a political awareness, um, even though I was going to study engineering. And that was necessary because on campus, um, I was there at Michigan when our uh, undergraduate and law school admissions policies were challenged all the way to the Supreme Court um, for the use of affirmative action and the use of race as a as one of the uh, elements of the decision-making process about whether to admit a student. And so I got active on campus. Uh, I ran an organization for black men on campus called HEADS. And I also helped to organize the, the you know buses to go to the Supreme Court for our day in court, our affirmative action trial and all these things. But when I got to Seattle, um, I missed that. I missed that kind of engagement. And so alongside working at Microsoft, alongside actually starting a software business called Detroit Intern to try to convince people not to leave Detroit like I did, um, I started a political blog in 2005 called The Super Spade, Black Thought at the Highest Level, based off of a quote from Muhammad Ali. And I started writing about policies and current events in, in you know, November of 2005 when, you know, bluntly, there weren't a lot of black bloggers writing about politics. Um, at that time, I started with my two best friends in college, and um, that site gained some energy and gained some momentum in that early black political blogosphere. Um, and I actually met people who did something I didn't even know was possible. They worked in politics as professionals. Like, I didn't know that was a thing. Like my parents had real jobs. My mom worked for General Motors. My dad worked for the Department of Defense. <laughs> like they had real jobs, and they did this 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 like activism stuff as a hobby but I met people who like got their health insurance from working in politics. And so I was really blown away by that. Um, and I, I got a chance through my blog to build some relationships with people who worked in the progressive political movement. Um, I met people like Van Jones back in 2006, for example, when he had just started color of change um, with, a, with his partner, James Rucker at the time. Um, and I met others who were sort of these early online activists, and that was what opened the door for me to think about, maybe there's a career here. Maybe um, I could combine the things I know about technology um, with helping people realize their political power and potential. And so that all culminated with um, me helping with something called the New Organizing Institute, Washington, D.C., um, training political organizers on how to make websites, which is how I started. Um, and I met a lot of people in the movement that way. Ultimately, what happened was I, I got an email from MoveOn.org to volunteer for the Obama campaign in Seattle. Um, the Obama campaign office was a couple of blocks away from my wife's apartment, my now wife's apartment in downtown Seattle. And I went there as a regular volunteer. They gave me a stack of papers and said to call all these people. <laughs> but then an organizer there in that office um, decided to have a longer conversation with me, and they figured out that I knew how to do some other things. And so they then did what or good organizers do, and they put me to work. And I uh, ended up running the social media for Washington State in 2008. So, like I did like the Friendster page and the MySpace page. Um, uh, I did like super early Facebook, super early Twitter stuff for the state. And I got a chance to be on the team to help create the national text messaging program um, to help recruit volunteers. And that was a transformative experience. That showed me that there was indeed a way for me to combine my tech my tech talent with my political interests. And so after being inspired by that um, and deciding that that was more fulfilling than my work at Microsoft, which was great, but I thought this was more fulfilling. Um, I actually quit my job the week before I got married to my wife um, at Microsoft 
And then we got married. We moved across country to Washington, D.C., and that's when I um, got a job and learned how to be a community organizer and, and kind of went, went on, on there. to the Obama campaign and then, yeah, move on and, and eventually... Well, so from that, um, I was I, I took a job at a place called the Center for Community Change, which is now called Community Change. Um, and I was I was what they called their new media director. Basically, it was like, OK, you know how to do tech stuff and but you're not an IT guy. <laughs> so um, work with us to help scale our organizing. This is an organization that had existed. Uh, the Kennedy family and a consortium of labor unions founded this organization months after Bobby Kennedy was assassinated wanting to carry on his legacy of work for um, um, advocating for the rights of low-income people and low-income people of color. And so I got a chance to help them scale that work um, for a couple of years. And then I went to become national campaign director at, at MoveOn.org, which I was doing that for three years out of D.C. And in a, in a really tasty bit of irony, um, in 2012, I ran move on's volunteer recruitment program for the re-election of President Obama and Vice President Biden. And I was the person sending the emails like the one I got in 2008, four years previous, prior to that. And so, yeah, this is really crazy. That kind of hit me one random day in August. And I said that to my boss, like, I, I got this email four years ago. And she's like, really? Yeah, it was, it was crazy. Um, and so I did that for three years. Uh, but there was this really important thing that was gnawing at me, and it was that, you know, I, I went to Seattle to be a software developer. I left there, no longer a software developer. We moved to D.C., and D.C. was great for my wife and I. Um, you know, my, my twin children were born on my birthday in 2013 in Washington, D.C. Like, it was, it was fun and everything. But I really missed home. I thought that home was where I needed to be. I was, I felt guilty because I left home. I talked about that first business I started, Detroit intern, like the premise of the business was we're going to start an internship slash jobs website. So people like Garland don't leave Detroit <laughs> basically. Cause I thought I needed to go someplace else to have my career. And so I always felt guilty about that. And so um, thankfully um, you know, my wife and I were able to find opportunities career-wise to be able to come home. And I got a chance to work in city government in Detroit um, on the technology side, frankly, not even the political side or the public affairs side. I worked in technology. Like I was the director of innovation and emerging technology. I wrote a policy on open data. I built an app for non-emergency service requests. I changed the way that we fixed fire hydrants, like super <laughs> mundane um in the weeds, in the dirt, whatever stuff. Um, and I was so happy though. Um, I was so happy uh, because I was home. I was working for the only entity that I knew could touch every single person in Detroit, which was the government, which I had never thought about working in government before until then. And, and it was amazing. And so I, I was there raising my children in the city. Um, like I said, I was the happiest person in Detroit. And then uh, the 2016 election happened. And folks may remember, people, everyone in Detroit remembers that there was a particular brand of election failure in Detroit that year as far as um, how the election had been administered. And we had a whole situation where there was an attempted recount um, in Michigan that was called for by Jill Stein that failed for a couple of big reasons. Um, one, because 
it was thrown out in court because they didn't think Joe Stein had a chance to win anyway. But more importantly, it was failed because of um, there were two, there were so many precincts, 60% of precincts um, in Michigan, in, in Detroit that were not able to be, they were not eligible to be recounted because they were so messed up. And so due to that, failure and, and, you know, the fact that Trump won Michigan by 10,704 votes is the slimmest margin of any state, 0.3%. Um, I really believed that there was more that could be done, that there were 11,000 votes in Detroit if we had an electoral system that worked and um, that we could change the country um, by having elections work right in Detroit. So um, with that feeling and with the encouragement of a few uh, people who were, I think, outside of the mainstream <laughs> in Detroit, they encouraged me to actually run for local office. So I ran to be the Detroit city clerk, the election administrator in 2017, as a completely ridiculous long shot candidate. I was running against a three term incumbent. It's a citywide office. The city clerk counts the votes even in the city clerk election, like there were all these reasons why this was ridiculous. But nevertheless, even though I was not involved in local politics, I said I was working for the city government as a technocrat. I had never, I had not been to a, you know, 14th congressional district meeting before. I didn't know people. Um, I had met city council people because of my job, but I, you know, I wasn't involved in politics locally. But um, thanks to the help of this, really extraordinary group of volunteers um, and the support of people from around the country, actually all 50 states. I have volunteers and donors from all 50 states. And we ran this campaign for Detroit City Clerk, this super long shot. Um, and I came really close, but I lost. <laughs> I, uh, I lost by 1,486 votes um, to that three-term incumbent. And um, I thought that, okay, you know, uh, this was me trying my hand in the political arena. Maybe I'll try it again at some point later in life. Um, but I learned a tremendous amount and I gained a lot of new, good relationships in it and was going to just, you know, kind of go back to private life, if you will. And one of the relationships that I gained during that campaign was I met a woman named Gretchen Whitmer. Gretchen Whitmer was running for governor of Michigan at the time that I was running for Detroit city clerk. We met at the Labor Day parade in Detroit in 2017 and just kind of, you know, said hi, exchanged pleasantries, exchanged cell phone numbers, and just kind of would text each other kind of encouraging words every now and then as we both were on the campaign trail. And after my election was over and I, my, my, my loss was uh, in the books, um, you know, she had reached out to me because she wanted to uh, hear about my experience from going from being a person who was literally unknown, like 2% in the first poll that had my name in it, in in early April of 2017 to, you know, getting nearly 50,000 people to vote for me in November and just how I was able to, what I learned from that experience. So we had a really great conversation, um, which led to some other conversations, which led to several months later, her asking me to be her running mate and join her on the ticket to serve the people of Michigan. So when I say my story is all over the place, uh, I think it is, <laughs> but I think the, the connective tissue, though, is um, I was I was and continue always to look for um, how I can use the things that I've learned, um, the experiences that I have had to try to um, create things that are new and different and better and more valuable for more people. And and the lieutenant governorship has been the highest honor and, um, for me to be able to try to do that. 
I think it's really helpful for people to hear that because there's I think there's a sense that there's one path in to to politics. You know, you're the kid who wants to be student body president all the way up to to being elected to the presidency. Uh, but but there's so many entry points and ways to get involved, and it's helpful for people to hear. I guess my uh, I have so many questions, but the first question I'll ask you is, um, you know, as a technologist, what what don't technologists understand about politics and what don't politicos and policymakers understand about technology? All right. I'm gonna give you like the shortest possible version of that answer. Um, <laughs> um, let's start with, um, first of all, I think there are a number of assumptions that, that um, both of those camps make about one another that, that are problematic and lead to them talking past each other. Um, I think that technologists. I'll start with. I'll start with that because that's you know also what I am at heart. I think that sometimes we tend to underestimate or underappreciate um, the, the the reason why some processes have become the way they are. I'll give you a really good example: um, procurement, like the bane of the existence of most public servants, procurement. Like there's a reason why procurement processes are precarious. And part of that is, is one about sort of stewarding public resources, but also part of it is because like corruption's really bad. <laughs> like you don't want public officials to just like give stuff to their family members who are otherwise unqualified. And so there are rules in place and processes to like protect against that. And sometimes I think technologists uh, we are sort of wired to shortcut processes. I want to find the most efficient way to get from point A to point B. There's just like a better, smarter, shorter, quicker, cleaner way to do this. But sometimes we have to recognize that processes do have value, even if they add friction. So that's one thing that I think um, is important. And I think that people should try to be a little bit more empathetic and appreciate why some things the way they are. That does not mean by any stretch of the imagination that there are not reforms to be had to every process. Um, but it is worth being understanding and at least trying to taking some time to do the work to recognize or understand why, why things are the way they are, because that'll also help you design better solutions. So that, that's one thing. On and can that I direction. pause there? Cause I just, I just want to dork out for a second because I think this is the most unknown part of government or underappreciated part of government is procurement is from so many angles, right? It's the innovation piece of government. It's supporting minority and women-owned businesses piece of government. It's uh, getting better service to people. And it's just this area that that sort of everyone, people in government and people even outside of government sort of throw their hands up because it's it seems dull, it seems hard. Um, how do, like, Without without going too far into the weeds, but like, what are a couple top line ways that you think this could be addressed or should be addressed? Well, I, I appreciate that. First of all, I think we need to think about what are what are the like kind of three P's of governing, right? You basically you have you have personnel, you have policy, you have procurement, and for so many things, like the way that people experience government for the most part is through like things that the government bought, <laughs> right? And so the government bought traffic lights. The government bought 
that software system that helps you renew your driver's license online. The government bought um, that system that manages your water resources. Like that's something the government paid for. And so that, so procurement is really important and it is a, can be like a big, um, a big hairy, strange beast. I think that, um, you know, there are a couple of things. There've been a lot of people done a lot of deep thinking about this. Um, one thing that comes to mind for me, and we tried to do this a little bit when I was in the city of Detroit under the leadership uh, of my boss there, uh, amazing woman named uh, Beth Niblock, uh, who was the chief informa- is the chief information officer in the city still today. Um, we tried to look at how, instead of merely having procurement be this like request or proposal process that is like very staid and very like structured to the point where the life is wrung out of it. Um, trying to think about procurement um, in terms of problem solving. So like, not like, so a lot of times these requests for proposals, they like actually like define the solution and then someone's supposed to like tell you how much it costs to build that solution. And that's one way you can think about it. You also could say, let's try to have the most clear articulation of the problem that we need to solve. And then open the door for people to present a set of different solutions and varied solutions to try to meet that need that we can evaluate in terms of how well it solves the problem. Um, so, for, so for example, rather than saying, um, we need a sprinkler system to water all of the grass in all of the state parks because grass needs to be watered, okay? That's one way you could sort of write an RFP that says it needs to have this many sprinkler heads and like this many, this many miles of pipe and this many clamps and all that kind of stuff. Or you could say having beautiful, um, beautiful state parks is part of what makes Michigan an attractive place to live. So we want to figure out how we can most effectively not just maintain um, our parks infrastructure, but to make it even more beautiful and more inviting. It's like part of that is watering the grass, right? But part of that also is having a whole approach to like how you develop and foster and support the diverse flora and fauna that are native to the region and all this kind of stuff. And so by having like, I think a richer perspective and then presenting frankly that uh, to those who are, who are positioned to respond to it, I think you just get better solutions and better experiences from that. And that is something honestly that I learned as a technologist that like problem statements really matter. And for as much as policy is about problem solving, I don't know that policymakers are good enough at actually stating problems clearly. And that's something that I think that um, they can pick up from uh, technologists um, if they were willing to have that kind of conversation and that kind of understanding. Yeah, the problem statement uh, has to has to be first and has to be thought out in order to in order to have the meaningful policy discussion. But I think I also interrupted you as you were talking about what maybe what policymakers don't understand enough about uh, technology. Well, that's that's one thing. The, the, the kind of last thing I said is, is one piece that I think sort of policymakers could could learn from technologists is that in terms of like what may not be well understood, um, I think that well, first of all, I think I'll give you a couple things. One is that. I think that due to a, a not a high enough level of understanding of technology, like at the median, um, policymakers think that technology is magic. Like I had a, um, 
a professor who one of the most profound things that I learned in college was a professor who gave me this quote who I don't remember who said the quote, but it said like any advance in technology is, is indistinguishable from magic. Like when you just, if you actually think about that, like that's very true. I think about that. Like I have two degrees in engineering, right? But can I really like explain how wireless internet works? Like one year you had to plug your computer in internet and the next year you just didn't. And the internet was actually faster. Like that's, magic. Right? <laughs> and so I think similarly for a lot of things, um, policymakers are really excited to try to find a way for technology to like magically solve a problem so we don't have to think about the policy anymore. And you see this in sort of innocent things and then very problematic things. So like all the way from like facial recognition technology will solve the uh, problem of identifying suspects. Well, that is just like objectively false, right? Um, but policymakers think that, and that's why you see so many, so much facial recognition policy used in public safety, um, and a lot of times ways that is harmful um, to people of color. Or you'll see things like, well, um, this this technology says that 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 they can automate everything, so we just like automate stuff, and then it'll be fine. That's not how that works. And so I think the we the think policymakers should understand that about technology that it is not magic, um, and that it does need to be understood and applied to the right to the right problems. Because um, what I also think that they misunderstand is that technology um, is actually kind of dumb. Like technology, like any technology, like a computer program does exactly what you tell it to do, and nothing more and nothing less, literally. And so it is not going to do something. If you point a good technology in the wrong direction, you will get a bad outcome. And um, we need to recognize that and be cognizant of that. And I think technologists understand that, but policymakers don't. I'd like to, I mean, I could go on forever uh, about this. I'd like to encourage you on your windy road. Uh, if there's a, if there's time for a book uh, exploring these issues in depth, um, I think it's desperately needed at almost every level of government. And, and going forward as we try to address it. Uh, I want to ask you two last questions. First is uh, COVID. I want to get a sense of how things are going in Michigan uh, and how you feel like the state's doing as the numbers are going down on preventing a resurgence and what, what other communities and states have to learn from that. Michigan got hit really hard. Um, we were hit early and we're one of the hardest hit states. And we had to spring into action really quickly. To put this in perspective, um, our presidential primary was March 10th. March 10th was also the night we had our first two confirmed cases of coronavirus. And so um, we actually did not even celebrate. Um, the governor and I had endorsed Joe Biden, and we had campaigned with him the day before, the night before March 9th. I actually get a kick out of the fact that a lot of the like, really happy pictures of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are at a rally in Detroit on March 9th, which is pretty great. Um, but uh, we didn't even celebrate that victory because, you know, we got word, I think, around, gosh, it must have been like, you know, 8.30, 9.30 that night. And at, ele- at like 11 o'clock, the governor did a press conference announced that we had our first two cases and nothing has been the same since. Um, I'm proud of what we did to try to get ahead of this community spread. Um, we took really strong action because the science said that that's what was necessary to save lives. And we took more aggressive action than a lot of states did 
And I think that, um, and, and independent studies, I don't think independent studies have verified that because of that action, we saved a lot of lives. That doesn't mean that we didn't lose a lot of life. And I, I'm, I'm concerned about that. And that's visited me personally. I have lost 23 people in my life to COVID-19. Um, but we uh, believe that we did what we needed to do because that's where the science directed us. Um, and we respect science and, and respect data and evidence and wanted to make sure we were collecting data and evidence. And we did so in ways that other states didn't that I think they can learn from. For example, we were one of the first states and they're still one of the few states to actually collect uh, race and ethnicity data when it comes to coronavirus test results and COVID-19 deaths. And we reported that publicly, one of the first and only states to do that. Um, the federal government does not do that, which we've called for them to do. Which they don't do it with any level of consistency. I think they did like one racial disparities report randomly. Um, no comprehensive approach to this. And I'm very proud of the fact that because we did that work, thanks to in part, I'll talk about, I just talked about representation earlier. Our leadership team is the most diverse in the country. We have Gretchen Whitmer, myself, I'm the highest ranking black elected official in the history of our state. Our chief medical executive, Dr. Joni Caldoun, is a black woman. And we prioritize addressing racial disparities in real time. So um, I am the chair of our Michigan Coronavirus Task Force on Racial Disparities, which we created in early April. And um, I have directed that task force to do two things. To do the thing that all task forces do, you get experts together and you do research, you take in information and you, make a, you create a report that makes a set of recommendations. So we are in the process of doing that. But most importantly and most urgently, we are also in the process of dealing with what needs to happen to save lives and prevent people from getting infected in real time. So we did things like um, really innovate on testing accessibility. The testing supply was constrained because Donald Trump is a failure and there was no national strategy for testing. But what that led to, though, is people begging for tests particularly black and Latino people begging for tests in Michigan and not being able to get them. And you have medical professionals having to make a choice about who gets tested and who doesn't. Whenever you have a choice point like that, um, biases um, present themselves. And so we have taken some very strong action in Michigan to first, in the very beginning, we, one of the first actions of the task force was to send a letter from Dr. Caldoun to every medical provider in the state of Michigan um, using, doing the research back um, intervention of telling people to recognize that implicit bias is a real thing and that it may be present in your decision-making, your treatment, your treatment decisions. The second, uh, one of the other early things we did is innovate testing accessibility, meaning that, um, you know, I'm from Detroit, we the Motor City, so we figured out a way to test people inside of their cars <laughs> uh, through drive-through testing. But we also, way to be on brand. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, we're consistent. But, but we also recognize that in a city like Detroit, that is the Motor City, but they're also that three in 10 Detroiters don't have cars. And so they rely on public transportation. And I don't know, you've ever tried to like take a bus to a Wendy's and do, do the drive-through, that is impossible. And so we had to think about how can we deliver testing in an accessible way to the people who do not have that option. So we scaled up something we call mobile testing, which is these specially outfitted vans that will drive testing to a place and people can come get tested. A church, a long-term care facility, a jail, um, a park, whatever, to have people be able to come and get tested. And we recognize that that was, that was a big thing, um, and that really has helped make a difference because testing is the front door to treatment. Um, another thing that we did that we're really proud of is recognize that people of color who were disproportionately impacted, to give you some numbers on that, 
uh, black people in Michigan. We're 14% of the population. And at the time we started the task force, they were, we were like 41% of the deaths. And so um, we recognized that part of that also had to do with the types of jobs that black people had or that people of color had in Michigan. We're overrepresented in those life-sustaining jobs like uh, being first responders, being utility workers, being um, grocers, being bus drivers, all these jobs where people were um, exposed to the virus because they had to go to work. And so we were really aggressive in putting in place worker protections um, to protect those people in those job functions, which we believe had an impact on um, slowing the infections and the deaths in the community. And then the last thing that I'm, um, or, or uh, another thing I'll describe, I guess, is we also recognize the fact that just uh, there are a lot of people of color who just don't have doctors or don't have health insurance or are woefully underinsured. And it is very difficult to manage any kind of, uh, you know, healthcare needs if you don't have a medical professional who works with you. So we have people who are coming into contact with medical professionals for the first time in a long time because of the pandemic. And so we developed a navigator program to connect them with primary care physicians so that they can not only manage any COVID-19 diagnosis, but they could also manage uh, chronic conditions, diabetes, high blood pressure, asthma, heart conditions, et cetera, that would lead to better health outcomes for those conditions as well. Um, so there's a lot more, but I'm proud of that work and, and we are beginning to close that disparities gap. So I'm, I'm proud of the people who stepped up on the task force and we have done work in real time to save lives. And, and, and now we're focused on things like making sure people get their flu shots because the, the coupling of vulnerability to the flu and COVID-19 is something that's a very scary possibility. So we want to make sure people, particularly those who are vulnerable, um, are getting their flu shots. We, the, the governor and I have penned a letter to the federal task force on vaccine distribution, um, letting them know that we have learned a lot about how to make sure that people get the information and services they need in vulnerable communities and communities of color and offering our help to that task force. So these are things we've done. I think they've made a difference and I hope that other states um, take note. And a lot of them have. They've reached out about the task force. They've reached out about the fact that we declared racism to be a public health crisis um, about a month ago and have unlocked the full power of state government to measure the impacts of racism and to then build policy and program responses to that. Um, I think this will all begin to bear fruit. Yeah, and uh, thank you. And uh, my county board of supervisors uh, that I'm on, we, we passed that same uh, resolution and are going to be able to track in part inspired by your work in Michigan. Let me ask you, um, I mean, one of the reasons that you've had to be so uh, innovative in Michigan uh, is because of the failure at the federal level. In my last question here, how's Michigan looking for no the November election? Yeah, so we have, obviously Michigan is, is an important state in the presidential election. We need to look no further than the way that Donald Trump talks about Michigan, um, his very personal attacks on Governor Whitmer, um, the amount of time that, that President Trump and Vice President Pence have spent in and on Michigan, it is very important to them. Um, we also have a very important Senate race here for to reelect Senator Gary Peters because uh, holding Gary Peters' seat is critical to Democrats ultimately ascending to the majority in the United States Senate. And then we also had two of our congressional districts flipped from red to blue um, because of uh, two amazing women who were elected, Haley Stevens um, in, our eighth, in our 11th district and Alyssa Slocken in our 8th district. And we also have a couple of other seats that are uh, 
possibilities for us to flip in Western Michigan. We have uh, the seat currently held by Fred Upton. We have a great uh, progressive challenger named John Holdley in Michigan 6th District. And we have uh, the seat that is currently occupied by independent Justin Amash. Got some fanfare when he voted for impeachment and left the Republican Party. Um, he is not seeking re-election in that seat. And we have a great Democrat named Hillary Skelton in the Michigan 3rd District who has a chance to take that seat. So we have a lot of opportunities on the table. And we even on the state level are looking to flip our Michigan House from red to blue to, so that Governor Whitmer not cast an allies in the legislature because the Senate is, is run by Republicans and the House currently is too. Um, I think that it will be critical for us to maximize voter turnout the way we did in the primary. Um, but we have a path to victory. We've seen how this can be done. And remember that I talked about Donald Trump winning Michigan by 10,704 votes in 2016. Well, in 2018, Gretchen Whitmer and I, in a historic election, won Michigan by 10 percentage points. We won by 400,000 votes because we made it clear that every voter in every county was a potential Democratic voter. And our strategy was to talk to all of them. <laughs> we did not uh, want to exclude people from the possibility of, um, of voting for a better future. And that is exactly the approach that we're taking here in the 2020 election. The Michigan Democratic Party has been never stopped knocking doors after our election in 2019 and knocked tens of thousands of doors so that when the pandemic hit and we had to pause that door-to-door -door program, we already had the relationships. We already had the cell phone numbers and the email addresses of people so we could continue organizing and building power even in the midst of this pandemic. And I think that organizing and the fact that the Biden campaign has come in as a willing and enthusiastic partner to support that, to add their own organizers alongside organizers on the ground in the state, um, that I think that's going to uh, propel us to victory here in Michigan um, at the presidential level, at the senatorial level. And I'm excited to, you know, flip our Michigan State House, um, to flip our Michigan Supreme Court, um, and to and to potentially uh, pick up two more congressional seats in our congressional delegation. So we had a lot of potential, and Michigan is going to show everybody how it's done. Amen. <laughs> well, Lieutenant Governor Gilchrist, thanks for joining us today. It was a great discussion. I hope to have you back uh, sometime soon, uh, and we so we can talk more because I think you just have such a unique insight on how to make government work and make it work for everyone. Uh, and I I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you so much, Ryan. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.